Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So this week's book club, for anybody who wasn't able to, or hadn't seen or is just tuning in on the off chance, this is this month's book. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did by Philippa Perry. And it's fundamentally a book about the habits and practices of engendering emotional wellness, emotional health, happiness in your children. And what I love about this book, and and love is probably the word because as you can, I don't know if you can see, but I've kind of folded down lots of pages, partly just in terms of the parenting advice, but as she says in the book, lots of it also relates to building healthy relationships in general. And of course, as a psychotherapist, a lot of the the theory that she draws on and, and the practice is that of, of what we do in therapy, which is about you know helping people to build a, an intuitive, trusting relationship with their own emotions so that that becomes your foundation, your basis of building good relationships going forwards. And so what you will always hear me say over and over again is to take your emotions seriously and I feel like that was one of the themes that comes out quite well and quite frequently in this book. So I as ever have some things that I wanted to just mention and highlight that kind of stuck out for me. We didn't get a huge number of questions in advance for this one so if you have any questions as we go along do let me know and let's have a good chat. So the first thing that I wanted to say was about her emphasis that time is everything, that if you give somebody your time, it really means an enormous amount. And I think not just for children, obviously the priority in the book is about children and parenting, but we know that. We know that if you're with someone and they're a bit distracted, they're looking elsewhere, they're on their phone, they're not really giving you their attention, then we feel a bit neglected, we feel a bit overlooked, we feel a little bit dismissed and dispensable, really. We feel like we could be anyone and we don't really matter. So the importance and value of time and giving your time. And I often think of it as, you know, essentially your time is your life, right? Your life is made up of hours and minutes and days. And so if you invest that time in someone else, you're actually giving them a little a little portion of your life. And that means a lot. And that time is our non-refundable resource. You know, we're not going to get some more time. We can't build it back. We can't get an exchange. We can't get a refund. 
So where you invest your time, how you invest your time is hugely important and makes enormous amounts of difference to people's lives. It's one of the reasons that I'm always enormously grateful that you guys give up some of your time um, to join me for book club and and why I always try to you know make it worth your time. Like I, I understand that it is investment is an hour that you're not putting somewhere else. So thank you very much for that. So that's my starting point. The other thing about attention is the way in which she really makes um, the point that there's no shame in needing attention. And I say that because I think a lot of people, well, we first of all, we use you're an attention seeker. And I've done a post about this some time back. Um, you're such an attention seeker. We use that in the pejorative sense. You know, we use it as a criticism. We use it as a way of, of shaming people, of making them be small, of, of making them change their behavior. You're such an attention seeker. As if that's a bad thing. And that doesn't really make any sense because, of course, we all need attention. Without attention, we literally, if we think about children's development and some of the early studies in, in deprivation, you cannot thrive without attention. You know, you may be being fed and you may be being clothed, but without attention, without investment, without eye contact and warmth and interest and questions and being involved, the rest of your development is stunted and halted. And similarly, that humans, we're, we're a social species, we're, we're born into networks, we live in those networks, and we rely on those networks, we're not very well equipped for, for fending for ourselves emotionally or physically. And so attention is essentially necessary for our existence and our well-being. And so I, I just want to make that an explicit statement that sometimes we all need attention and there shouldn't be any shame in in people wanting attention and sometimes I'll sit with someone and they will have had this message you're such an attention seeker or you're such a drama queen it's always about your attention and and my question will always be well, well tell me about your need for attention what attention is it that you think you need what is it that you think that you haven't had what do you want people to notice about you because often the need to seek attention is really speaking to a need to be noticed, to be recognised, to be valued, to be told that we're valued. And all of those things are legitimate needs. Yeah. So if anybody tells you you're, you're an attention seeker, rather than feel shame about it, you know, just understand that as a very natural human need, um, emotionally, physiologically, and just in general for our well-being. So there is no shame in needing attention. The big thing that I really wanted to talk about, and I was really glad that she touched on it, was parental lies, which is essentially when parents actively lie or withhold big things from their children. And obviously there's a question about age appropriate knowledge, but essentially Philippa's case is that well, A, you shouldn't lie to children, but B, you shouldn't delude yourself that just because you haven't said something explicitly, the child hasn't picked up on it. That They haven't intuited in their body, in your behaviours, in observing your actions or your interactions with other people, that there's something just not right here. And 
one of the things that we see quite often in therapy is how a familial lie really permeates the the entirety of the family and what i mean by that is when you're when you're keeping a big secret when you're keeping a big family secret or or telling a big lie or you know a lie by, by omission firstly and if you guys joined me for the lying book club you'll be up to speed on this firstly there's just the enormous energetic demand of maintaining the lie avoiding any information that might link back to the the truth you know other distortions that have to be brought into place to keep the lie going and that just takes away some of your capacity to just have a normal healthy relationship one of the other things that big family secrets or lies does is to kind of force all of the relationships in the family to be at a very superficial level and the the reason for that is because if I'm keeping a big secret from you I'm aware in every single interaction that we have that there is something that I'm withholding from you you know I'm withholding secret knowledge so there's already a level of separation between you and I you're coming to me and, and having what you think is a straightforward honest interaction but at the same time I'm kind of presenting one side of myself to you but keeping another behind you know I've always got a little part in my brain that's like oh this is actually what you really know and this is what I'm not telling you and this is what I think you might do if if you heard about it and this is you know there's always a kind of secondary track of thought going a secondary script going all the time and what it does is to make real intimacy not just difficult because you've got these two tracks going but quite dangerous right because if I allow my guard down if I get too comfortable with you if I get too easy and casual and intimate in our interaction I might let something slip and so what you tend to find in families where there is a big old secret, often that the, well, typically that the parents are keeping either from each other. So maybe one parent has had an affair or something like that and, and they're keeping it from each other. Or maybe there's some you know, terrible family secret and they're being kept, it's being kept all from the children that everything sits on the surface. Everything becomes very superficial because we cannot take the risk of becoming too comfortable, too intimate, too close and too honest with one another. And in that way, even though the person maintains the idea that this lie isn't affecting anybody, actually what it's done is to really impair the potential for these relationships and the capacity and the, the, the closeness and the safety that these relationships could engender because actually the priority is keeping the secret and protecting the lie, not the quality of the relationship. And then Philippa also makes some, so, you know, those are my observations. Philippa also makes some specific points on, on parental lies. And this is on page 202. She makes some specific points about the impact of parental lies. And this really pertains to some, some quite big parts of my work when we're thinking about body and body image. And if you have been around here for a little while, you'll know that I... A, I'm always saying take your emotions seriously, but also that emotions are embodied. Emotions are in your body, you've experienced them in your body, and what they 
what, what happens is that there's a translation in your brain between the embodied emotion, the understanding of it, the understanding of the meaning of it and the message that it's trying to give you. And that's a necessary process. And what parental lies do is that they what she says is that they kind of blunt your intuition, because what happens with a parental lie is that the child or children will know that something's not right. You'll sense it. And you you sometimes you'll get that feeling as adults when you're watching maybe a TV show or just an interaction with someone. And you'll be like, I don't I just don't like this person or something doesn't feel right. It's this. I don't know if I can trust this person. It just, you know, and you, you won't be able to name it. That doesn't mean it's not real. But there's a response in your body. There's a kind of embodied emotional response to it. And that's really important because that's essentially that building of your intuition, your ability to understand that, make sense of that experience, trust it and build on it and hone it and sharpen it is about building your intuition and building that sense of trust with yourself. And so in the situation where there's a parental lie, what will happen is that the child will have this sense, they'll have this experience of unease, something not being quite right but they'll get a different explicit message. No, 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 everything's fine. No, you're making it up. Nothing's wrong. Look, everybody's perfectly happy. And what that does is to create a situation in which the child's intuition is being blunted. You know, they're being taught to mistrust their own sense that something's not quite right. That the mind-body connection starts to get distorted, broken down, and, and and is left slightly in disarray. And this is so often what I see uh, when working with people uh, with difficulties eating, because one of the things about being able to feed yourself is to be able to trust your body and to trust the messages of your body, to trust that when your body is hungry, when, you know, you're, when you're getting those hunger signals that what you need is food and that when you're starting to feel satisfied that it's okay to stop and anything in between thirst and you know mouth hunger and just wanting to taste something delicious all of those are expressions of a capacity to trust one's own body and that becomes impaired when you've gotten a persistent message through your development that actually there's something wrong with your intuition there's something wrong with your body and there's something that you think is wrong but you're told explicitly or implicitly that that it's not so knowing in your body that something is wrong and this is where we know things in this in a kind of emotional sense the blunting or stunting of your intuition that gets in the way parental lies get in the way of um, the relationship because actually the priority becomes not the relationship but protecting well, protecting me, if I'm if I'm lying to you, it's about protect often is about protecting me or protecting myself from your reaction. Um, and also the final point is that what I've written in my notes is that it breeds, encourages, or models insincerity, right? And again, this will be often an implicit knowing and an implicit message, but there's something that will come through that says. What we value here is insincerity. What we value here is surface level. What we like and what we perpetuate is nothing too deep, nothing too honest. And that in itself 
if that becomes your dominant way of being in the world, just keeping everything nice, just pretending everything's fine, smoothing over, over the cracks, that in itself will impair your, you know, the child's capacity when they grow up to have these deeper, more meaningful, more honest and safer relationships. All of that is to say, please don't lie to your kids. Um, and obviously, as I say, to reiterate that there is often age appropriate knowledge and often there's nothing wrong I think with saying you know yes something has gone wrong I'm not sure I can talk to you about it now but that sense you have is right so that there are ways of telling the truth in an age appropriate way but something goes quite wrong when you lie to children all right so we've got a comment here the mind and body connection is so strong and yes sometimes can't determine when they should trust their intuition in a dangerous situation. And this is exactly what Philippa says, is that if you if you start teaching children to distrust their intuition in these everyday ways, then what happens when they get into a frightening or dangerous or just what she describes as an icky situation where, you know, they have a bad feeling about the gymnastics coach or somebody at church or a, a distant member of the family you know have you engendered in them obviously not intentionally but that they shouldn't trust their intuition and that everything's fine and and you know so it becomes it becomes a risky proposition in terms of the child's safety um Liliana is saying oh no what about Santa Claus and Santa Claus I think is always <laughs> a really contentious issue in the in the episode on lying which was Sam Harris's it's not even a book it's it's a kind of extended essay oh lots of you very worried about Santa and the tooth fairy I'm gonna have to confess that I think it's personally um I think it's possible to engender wonder and joy and excitement in children without lying some people will say that that is an extreme position and and to be honest I probably do take a fairly extreme position on things like this. I I really, and, and that's going to come from my perspective of having seen the later life repercussions of early life lies and dishonesty on people. And I accept that I see a very skewed sample and the lies that the people I see have been told haven't been about Santa and the Tooth Fairy. But I'm, I'm going to leave that for the discussion because I know... Parents will take a different stance on that. And, and you know, mine is fairly straightforward. And, and is the message that some lies are OK and some aren't? And do you lie to that, to, to grandma when she buys you that, you know, knits you an ugly sweater? There, there are intricacies and nuances. Maybe lying about Santa isn't going to be the big traumatic uh, experience of a child's life. But the question then is, what happens does it undermine that child's trust in you? Who knows? All right, just going into the comments. I get triggered when people make comments about how much and when I'm eating. I think I take it as trying to question my intuition. Eating and, are you, oh, you going to eat all of that? Oh, are you sure about this? Oh, you, you've eaten so much. Oh, are you still hungry? I'm full. All of that stuff, it separates you from your own conversation with your own body what somebody else thinks of what you're eating 
how hungry you are or how hungry you should be. What is a reasonable length of time to be hungry after you've ate your last meal? It's, it's none of your business. You know, what somebody else thinks of the way you eat is absolutely none of your business. The the only person with whom that, that conversation is possibly relevant is your doctor. Otherwise, it's, I, I, I cannot think of, you know, outside of parents feeding children adequate nutrition, as a grown up making choices um, about your own food, as, a, as an adult with autonomy and agency and your own mind, somebody else's decision or comment or opinion about the amount of food on your plate, I'm not sure how it's relevant. All right, we're against it. How do the kids know what lies are okay if Santa is introduced? So there's a you know, a, a range of thoughts about Santa. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to nudge everybody in this part of the discussion back over to listen to it's. I think it's only about an hour, including he does like twenty minutes, half hour of Q and A. Sam Harris's audiobook on lying, where he sets out his position on, and it's not just the children. His position is about how lying is a, is a kind of moral slippery slope. Very interesting. All right. So where else do we want to go? Oh, I wanted to talk about orchids and dandelions, which is a lovely conceptualization of the children who are by nature and by constitution just a little bit more sensitive or a little bit more self-aware or, you know, quieter and looking around. Those children who might be you know, slightly quicker to cry or a bit more anxious, a little bit more, I don't like the term, clingy, but, you know, might need more reassurance versus the children who, for some reason, again, constitutionally, just, you know, that combination of, of hormones and nutrients and mother's stress levels in the womb might be a little bit more laid back, what we might consider robust, and that we need to understand this as a natural innate constitution. Again, I talk about this in, in a previous post on, on You're So Sensitive, about how unhelpful it is a statement to say to someone, you're so sensitive, for a couple of reasons, right? One is if you know someone is sensitive, then telling them they're so sensitive really doesn't help. It's, it's like you can't bully someone out of being sensitive especially if they're constitutionally sensitive like just telling them doesn't make them more robust what it tends to do is make them feel isolated and misunderstood and wrong as if there's something wrong with the way that they're made and that they're broken and that they should try to be different and if they can't make themselves different then they should just withdraw really from social life so it, it's not helpful it doesn't it doesn't work in trying to make someone more robust and also that and, and my argument is that we should be you know to a reasonable degree making accommodations for each other and so if I know that a friend of mine is particularly constitutionally sensitive then as someone who cares about them I'm going to be a bit more thoughtful in the way that I put things across and and that that's I would hope what someone would do for me if they felt that I was particularly sensitive to something. So it's it's not massively helpful. And that what is helpful is is perhaps thinking about these, con these constitutional differences, these just 
but some people are just built differently and some people will be and even if it's just for a period of time for a phase of their development a little bit more sensitive than someone else will be and actually what we should do is support them and accommodate them value that sensitivity because often what it does is to give people viewpoints and insights that perhaps the more laid back or gung-ho type person won't see so that there's value in that and not make it something to be ashamed of all right so suaj says what are your thoughts on babies and leaving them to cry it out especially at night time and going to sleep and she spends a lot of time talking about that and i think and i think i've said before in either in certainly in igtv where i'm not sure if it was a book club or just um a chat that i think you would struggle to find a psychologist or psychotherapist who endorses leaving babies to cry and what she explains very well is that babies well I mean one of the things we've known for a long time is that if you leave babies to cry yes eventually they stop crying but their stress levels don't come down all that they have learned when they stop crying and you haven't come to essentially rescue them from their feelings is that no one will come to me when I'm distressed. And and what she says in the book is that for your child, every experience is a first experience. You know, it's, everything is, is brand new. And all these emotions that lots of adults don't know how to understand or tolerate, you know, that lots of adults who suppress their anger or suppress their sadness, try to act like everything is fine. So these are emotions that lots of adults struggle with. Like, how can we possibly imagine or expect a little baby to bear that kind of overwhelming emotional distress by themselves and and so ideally if we think about every experience being a first experience for a baby what we would want is for their first experiences of the world to be ones that give them the message that people notice when they are distressed people can understand or interpret their distress and that that distress can be relieved right and that's that kind of process of you know you've got a crying baby going in picking them up and doing that process of um elimination you know are you tired are you cold are you hungry are you lonely and loneliness and the need for contact is as important a need as the need for food and the need for sleep right so there's that that interpretation that that process of decoding this emotion that's what the the caregiver does and then saying look now that there's relief so this feeling doesn't last forever someone can come to you in your distress help you understand your distress understand it for you and then that will lead to relief so that the message is then is that this pain is temporary and you can you can survive it so those are really the core messages that we want babies and children to get the, the risk is when you leave children to cry is that you, you don't get that. You don't get that message that someone will notice your distress. You don't get that process of decoding what that distress is. And you don't get the message that the distress ends at some point, that it's temporary. I mean, I don't know if that's a controversial position. Like I say, it's a pretty much established position in psychology and, and, and psychotherapy. And I thought her position on it was actually quite punchy. At one point, she says, manipulating, so talking about sleep training and, and crying it out, she says, manipulating your 
child to have the least impact on you is dehumanizing. And it's like, whoo, wow, <laughs> that is stated in quite explicit terms. So if you can just put yourself in the baby's position, you know, they're not trying to manipulate you. They're not just doing it for attention. And I think we've already spoken about attention and attention is a legitimate need. They're not trying to make your life hard, but what they're experiencing for the first time or, you know, the first few times is an overwhelming experience of distress that they have no means of understanding. And it's terribly frightening. It's very, very unsettling and destabilizing. And that what you would want is for that child to get the message that you're, you're, someone cares about you. They, they can see when you are distressed, that your distress can be understood and made sense of, and that your distress is temporary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right. Um, quickly back to questions. Looks like that. The more reflection of insecurity of the speaker who might be projecting their insecurity. Yes. So I think that's going back to the you're so sensitive comments. I think it's often a reflection maybe of insecurity, but of often of someone's intolerance of emotion, right? So if I can't bear sadness, shame, pain in myself, I absolutely am not going to tolerate it in you, right? So it's often about things that, yes, that person doesn't want to experience in themselves, and particularly vulnerability. If there's someone who tells themselves that they can't show any weakness, they can't feel pain, that it's hugely shameful to be vulnerable, then they are often more likely to then make fun of someone else who expresses vulnerability, even, you know, even though we know that it takes enormous courage to, ex to express vulnerability. So yeah, no, I'm with you on that, Emily. Um, I noticed that with my two children, one very sensitive and, and one quite bullish, 
ex-partner's family always compares and labels the older one grumpy and that infuriates me. Yeah. Right. So maybe these children just have different constitutions and maybe one isn't better than the other. Maybe they're just different and we can value them independently without having to turn it into a competition. That would be lovely. So someone says there was a lot in this I'd wish I'd read prior to having children. Felt a lot of guilt reading this. Again, I, you know, she says it a lot and I think she's very gentle. I had a friend of mine, actually one of the questions that came in was how do you recommend this book to someone whose child or children you think might benefit from it? And slightly separately, I've had a friend of mine and I kind of feel like everyone should read this book because it's it's more generally about also understanding your own experiences of being parented as well as what you might be like as a parent or what you have been like as a parent and the importance of that relationship with your child. And I just said to my friend, you know, just read the book. And she's like, I don't, I don't want to read the book because I essentially I don't want to read that I've done something wrong and, and then, you know, that I've messed my child up for life. I think Philippa does an awful lot to try to say, look, don't feel guilty. We all make mistakes. It's not, you know, the be all and end all. And there's always time to improve things and repair things. So, uh, you know, don't feel guilty. There is no such thing as a, par- a perfect parent. There's no such thing as a perfect person. Parenting is very, very difficult and it's a massive demand. So just cut yourself some slack and 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 just try to kind of move move forward with this kind of new knowledge. But I think it's a very timely book because I think these are the kinds of things, obviously, that in in therapy circles we know quite well, but for some reason those aren't the pieces of information that kind of trickle down into essentially the front line of building relationships. What did I want to say? Oh, about reparation. So, and again, this is something that I say fairly often. Quite often people have the idea that conflict is bad. Any conflict any disagreement in an intimate relationship, whether that is a marriage or a parent and child relationship or a sibling relationship or a friendship, any conflict or disagreement is is bad. And that having disagreements or having arguments is a sign of a bad relationship. And I, what I really want people to understand is that, that that's not true. And what we think about psychologically is that the quality of a relationship is much more effectively demonstrated and understood by the quality of the repair, not that the fact that there's no rupture and that there's no there's never any breaks or conflict, right? Obviously, they're at the extremes where there's just you know toxic relationships where people constantly fight. That's a, a separate extreme position, but the importance um, about reparation is this: is the idea that we can fight, we can argue, we can shout. Ideally, if you can try to express it, shouting tends to push people black into black and white states of mind, but you know, sometimes we shout. We can disagree, but if I can understand that fundamentally, you still respect me and I can still respect you, you can, and you, you can accept me when I'm at my worst, and that we can come back together and use the information of that conflict to build a deeper understanding of one another, then we've built a stronger relationship, right? So it's not that that argument was a sign that things are a catastrophe and it's never going to work and it's all over, but that what we do with that argument, the way that we repair and the way that we come back together is the indication of the quality of the relationship and the strength of our ability to be mutually respectful and to be fully and completely accepted, right? There's something 
very, very different from knowing that you can disagree with your best friend and still know that the next day you can make up and go for coffee to either disagreeing with your best friend and then not speaking for three weeks and then you kind of come back together and you don't talk about it and you just act like everything is okay but everyone's really scared to mention the thing that's happened in you know that is not a safe relationship right or the alternative being that in order to avoid any kind of conflict again we keep everything on this very surface level and we never get to really know each other on any deeper level so just to to bear that in mind I know people find conflict very difficult um, and not even conflict kind of real honesty find it very very difficult but and and often this is something that needs to be worked on in therapy a lot of people have the idea that disagreement or arguments or expressions of anger means the end of a relationship and that often is associated back to some earlier experiences of kind of either being on the receiving end of or or seeing toxic conflicts and that means that they can end up avoiding all sorts of conflicts altogether but if you can just even in a conceptual way get your your head around the idea that it's not the disagreement itself which is a sign of a problem or or the sign of the quality of the relationship it's the the ability to repair and And on that note, the importance, even for your adult children, and I say this on on behalf of adult children everywhere who've had difficult experiences with their parents, it's never too late to apologise. That there are, you know, I have friends of mine in their 50s who are desperate still for their parents to apologise, to recognise that they were wrong, to recognise that that child has value, you know, that that parent saying something like, I was really hard on you and it was wrong and I'm sorry, can relieve an enormous emotional burden for even the most adult of adult children. So if you happen to be a parent who's kind of struggling with maybe pangs of of guilt or remorse about something that you now have a different perspective on in terms of your relationship with your child and you're wondering whether it's worth saying sorry or worth talking about it because it's over now and it hasn't been mentioned and they probably won't remember and it doesn't matter and you don't want to you know drag up old old information the power even for adult children of an apology from your parent is enormous. And so if you have that within you, if you have the capacity, even if you have to write it down, then I would I would really encourage you to try to try to do that. You the relief that children can receive from that is enormous. All right, should we go back to questions? It's the conscious parent. I haven't, but I will. Thank you very much. Lauren says, I haven't read the book, but did a gentle sleep training where we would let them cry for two minutes and go in and comfort. We always wanted to make sure he knew we were there. And that seems to be the main thing. There's something quite different about being distressed and and, and feeling completely alone and then being distressed and knowing that you will be rescued. This is, And this is what the analogy that she uses is that you've been dumped on a desert island and you're putting out this distress signal and there are people over there on a raft who could save you 
but they don't come and what feeling that leaves you with. Angry all people should read it and does talk about rupture and repair, which is good. Guilt is such a com is so common in parenthood and it's really difficult to avoid sometimes. Completely understood. Liana, thanks for answering the question about which book it is. All right. So any other questions? I'm gonna take a sip of water and then see if I've got a few more points I want to make. All right, so someone says I'm in a conflict. I need to speak with a friend about a situation that could have had a colleague get the sack. On that note, I have in my book, because I know people find it very, very difficult to have what I call the big conversation. I always forget where it is. I'm so sorry. Give me one second. So page 196 to 200. I've given you a step-by-step guide on having difficult conversations. And that's the idea that, you know, the kind of conversation that gets in between a relationship that's kind of sits there like a boulder that definitely needs to be moved, that you just skirt around, that so many of us, so many of you have told me that you have a conversation like this that isn't had and therefore you end up having these kind of superficial top level conversations and it just gets ignored. And so I talk you through the step by step guide you know, first of all, working through the costs and the benefits, you know, and and we have to be honest and realistic about this, thinking about what you will gain, whether that's greater confidence, more self-respect, improved resilience from going through with it and having this conversation to whether it's useful to write things down. Can you have a friend or someone on hand to talk to? So big conversations in there. And that's based essentially on clinical experience. And that what a lot of therapy is about is having people not necessarily have that conversation but to be able to at least confront in themselves the big thing that they're avoiding so that's that um how to be an emotional container when you never had a parent who was your emotional container um so for those who haven't heard of that terminology before or haven't read the book essentially we think you know when we think about babies or any of us having intense overwhelming frightening perhaps destructive emotions it feels like we're kind of bursting at the emotional scenes everything's kind of spilling out and we can't pull ourselves together and that the role of the the caregiver in that in those early years is to is to hold you together you know in in that three-step process where I recognize your distress I decode your distress and I also demonstrate to you that your distress is containable and manageable and 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 survivable that we, we call that containment so that the parent or the caregiver contains the anxiety and the distress for the young person, the small person, until such a time as they internalise the ability and the capacity to do that for themselves. This becomes very difficult if you haven't had that experience. I will put a, a big kind of pitch in for the power of good quality friendships and romantic relationships. So very often, If you're, let's say that this person had a kind of insecure attachment for that reason, that they didn't have good containment in childhood or early life, but actually they managed to find a securely attached partner who is kind, who is loving, who is thoughtful, who is insightful, who can help to do those things, then a good good relationship can do that. But also that's what we do in therapy we help you to kind of make sense of your distress in such a way as then you'll be able to internalize that process for yourself so 
really, this isn't something that I think you can learn to do by yourself. You know, developing that capacity for emotional containment isn't a kind of self-help book online course situation. I think it it develops in relation. And whether that is in relation in childhood or in relation in adulthood, it requires the engagement, cooperation and safety of another person. So, yeah. Another thing um, that I see fairly often is this desire to be able to switch off your negative emotions. And I very much put those in inverted commas because I don't believe in negative emotions. I think all emotions are useful. Some of you will know that I did a podcast all about anger because it's my favorite emotion. I love it. I think it's a very important, powerful, motivating uh, emotion that is poorly maligned and misunderstood and, and just needs better PR, I think. So a lot of people have this wish that they could just turn off the bad emotions, the painful ones, the difficult ones, the ones we don't like, the ones that make our faces crumple up and, and make us less attractive and only experience the nice ones, the happy ones, the cheerful ones, the ones that people express on social media, the hashtag good vibes only emotions. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that, that you can't cut off one aspect of your emotional world and expect to have a full and flourishing emotional life over here, that these things come as part of a, well, and she calls it a mixing deck not sure I would use that analogy, but I guess if you think about them as a wave, like on a graph, right? And these are your good emotions at the top and down here are your bad emotions. And people often want their graph to like this or just like up and then staying up. That's not what happens. When you try to blunt emotions, what happens is that you might go from this to this, which is that you kind of just blunt all of your emotional affect and your emotional repertoire. So the, the, the desire or wish or the attitude of repressing, cutting off, pushing down your bad or uncomfortable emotions cuts you off from full access to those positive ones. And that's back to that idea of embodiment and emotions being in your body and cutting yourself off from your intuition, that you can't just partially cut yourself off from some parts of it and allow the rest to flourish they all come together and if you try to reduce one you're going to reduce them all and so that it's again a we need to get out of this kind of social cultural dichotomy about good emotions and bad emotions and just understand that emotions are messengers and that they're there trying to give us information and that we're much better off if we can approach emotions with curiosity rather than value judgments of good and bad welcome and unwelcome like if we can approach it with a way that feels like, ooh, this is interesting. What has this got to tell me? You know, why why are you here, anger? Or what have you got to tell me, sadness? Or what is this funk trying to convey to me? Um, if we can approach our emotions more with curiosity, and obviously that comes perhaps with time, that comes with processing trauma, that comes with experience, um, it comes with perhaps having it modelled for you. So having parents or influential adults around you who were able and interested in your emotions and their own emotions and other people's emotions and discussing them and you know seeing them just as pieces of information rather than being told I need you to be happy or or don't be sad or don't cry you know making emotions conditional 
if we can get to a point of uh, approaching them with curiosity, then they become much less frightening and they become much less things that we need to avoid and much more things that can be understood and utilised. So that's also what I talk about in the Understanding Emotions chapter. I talk about the big five, which were memory, anger, guilt, shame, envy and jealousy. They tend to be emotions that in my experience people really struggle with. People hate to feel envious. They hate to feel jealous. So they try to tell themselves that they're not. They hate to feel angry because they feel like it means they're out of control or childish. And what I do is to explain the kind of evolutionary perspective on these emotions. So i.e. the meaning of them, what they're trying to convey, and then how to tolerate them a little bit better. Um, So Lauren says, ways to increase your vocabulary and breadth of feeling of the bad emotions. So lots of (laughs) things that sound like absolute cliches, but partly it's about building tolerance. So if you know that you're the kind of person who perhaps when you start to cry, you know, kind of turns your head to the sky and starts blinking or tries to distract yourself or changes the subject or tries to be somewhere else or puts the TV on and all sorts of things, then you might try to start building that tolerance and that vocabulary by by avoiding those avoidance behaviours. So trying to do less of the distracting, trying to do less of the moving away. If this is a really built in habit for you, that's going to be very difficult and you might only do it in little tiny bits, right? So you might just try to tolerate the emotion for like 10 seconds. Now, again, you have to be fairly safe to do this. For some people, this is really only something that they can do in therapy because the emotion that has been suppressed for a very long time is enormously powerful, enormously frightening, and actually it wouldn't be safe for them. And that's the same thing for for mindfulness. So particularly where people might have had a traumatic background, or an emotionally neglectful or emotionally abusive background, mindfulness for about 12% of people that try it can actually make them a bit worse. And that's because they haven't first developed the tools to be able to tolerate the emotions that emerge when they stop and turn inwards. So again, that's one of the reasons we need to be quite careful when we talk about self-care on social media or elsewhere and say, you know, everyone should try mindfulness. There's going to be a group of people, as with everything, you know, nothing's black and white, nothing is great for everyone. There's going to be a group of people who are actually quite vulnerable to experiencing their emotions because they've repressed them or separated themselves from them for a long time. And actually what they need is that engagement with another person to help them to build the tolerance and to feel safe enough to go there. I I think only something like six or seven posts ago, I'm not sure about the date, I posted and, and provided a link to the emotions or feeling wheel. And, and that can, that's literally about the vocabulary of emotions, you know, and, and this came out of hearing lots of people say in response to how are you feeling, they then say stressed and stress can mean an awful lot of things. It can mean tired, overwhelmed, embarrassed, shamed, you know, it can mean an enormous array of different feelings. And what the feelings wheel does is to give you slightly more accurate terminology for the emotions that you might be experiencing. So that is, it's on my grid. And then in my bio, there's a link where you can download it. And I really recommend that people just download it, print it off, pop it on your wall. And you can then, even for yourself, when you're like, hmm, what am I feeling? And you can just go through, you know, I'm a sad, anxious, overwhelmed, da, 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 that you can then get to a closer sense of what you're feeling. And the more accurate you can be with the description, the more accurate you can be 
with the, the remedy or what you need to do to deal with it, right? So if stressed for you means overwhelmed, then you're thinking about how you might break up that problem or that issue into something that feels more manageable. If stressed for you means overtired, then actually you're talking about how do I give myself more rest and more opportunity for recovery? So the more accurate you can be with the description of the emotional experience that you're having, the better chance you have of selecting the right tool or tools in order to tolerate it and work through it. We are rapidly running out of time. So yes, <laughs> often cliches are there because they work. Sarah says she's been using the wheel during therapy. Very, very helpful. I'm very, very pleased to hear it. And I saw your post on Good Vibes Only. Really helpful. Thank you for sharing. You're very welcome. I posted that a couple of years ago because, again, I, I always slightly pitched myself at the corner on like a right angle to wellness, giving it a bit of side eye. And I just wanted to, you know, as I say in the post, if for you it's just about, you know, looking on the bright side and being generally cheerful and allowing other feelings and that's all fine fine but for some people I worry that they put themselves under pressure to just be constantly happy and that if they wake up one day feeling a bit sad they think there's something wrong with them or they think they need to work very hard to get back up to happy and and that's just not true sometimes for whatever reason something that you ate wrong side of bed you know something that you might never understand but it works itself out in your body or in your mind by the next day then, you know, sometimes your brain just does weird stuff and you can just ride it out without making it a demand or an expectation for yourself to be perpetually happy all the time. Um, so feel your feelings, be sad if you need to. There's no such thing as a bad emotion. They're all just messages and bits of information for you. I'm going to wrap this up before Instagram kicks me off. Thank you again for giving me your time and your kind attention um, and your questions. Next month's book is Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And that's all about cognitive dissonance, which is, you know, every psychologist loves a bit of cognitive dissonance. And I'll get that post up tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you again. And I will catch you soon. 